If you have a Bible, would you stand and turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 24. I'm going to read to you verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And they had found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on on the third day, rise." Verse 8, and they remembered his words and returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. Verse 12, but Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen clothes by themselves. And he went home marveling and wondering at what had happened. Let's pray. We come before you, Lord, this Sunday morning, marveling and wondering at what had happened. The Sunday that changed the world, that is no exaggeration at all. The Sunday when death was overcome, that life would reign. The Sunday where your plan of redemption hit its climax in the resurrection of your Son, the Sunday that changed the world, Lord, and we come to worship you, and we thank you that we could sing our songs and raise our voices to you, a great, glorious, and loving God, that none of us deserve to be in your presence, none of us were good enough, none of us were righteous enough, but you were gracious enough to send your Son to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, and so we celebrate this morning the Sunday where he conquered death and showed the world and showed us that your promises are true and eternal. We thank you. In his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Can you remember a time in your life when you were filled with wonder? When something happened to you and you weren't quite sure what to make of it, only that because of that thing, everything had changed. Because of that situation, that circumstance, that choice, everything in your life was now permanently altered. We all have these. I remember the first kind of significant moment of my life like that was when I left home, 20 years old, to to start life on my own. I left my island home and flew thousands of miles away from family and friends. I had that same sense that everything was going to be different when I asked my wife Lori to marry me and spend the rest of her life with me. I had that same experience at the birth of every one of my children. Moments in time that change everything. We all experience them. In Luke 24, what we just read is a significant moment in time that in fact did change everything and it is reminiscent of another moment in time in the life of Christ. You go back to Luke chapter 2. You don't need to turn there. I'll read it to you. In Luke chapter 2, that records the birth of Christ, we see these words in verse 15. When the angel went away from them, the shepherds, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby laying in a manger. And when they saw it, 
they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered and marveled at what the shepherds told them. You see, the birth and resurrection of Jesus Christ were both equally filled with marvel and wonder, and everyone involved, they all knew somehow, inexplicably to them at the moment, that because of these events, everything is going to be different from here on out. And in fact, they were because the perfect, infinite, eternal Son of God had been born, had lived, and died, and rose again. You know, the history of the world has called uh, Passion Week, which is this week, the week that changed everything, the week that changed the world. And we all know, especially if you're a history buff, there have been a few events that have marked all of history, but none quite like the events of Passion Week. Fewer still are the events that mark all of history and all of humanity, but nothing like the events of Passion Week. And there are no events in our history that mark history, humanity, and eternity like the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There just are none. And so this morning in the time we have left, I want us to think about this one solitary life and the events that surround this morning and how Jesus Christ's resurrection has marked history, humanity, and all of eternity. So with that, I'd love us to start thinking about how does Christ mark history? And I want to read to you the words of an Irish historian who actually is a skeptic about, uh, against Christianity, but he had this to say about the life of Christ. The scholar's name was W.E.H. Leckie from his book, A History of European Morals from Augustus to Charlemagne. And he writes this, The character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the strongest incentive in its practice and has exerted so deep an influence that it may be truly said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and soften mankind than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. James Stewart, not to be confused with the actor Jimmy Stewart, this is the scholar from Edinburgh University, says this about Jesus, that Jesus was a startling array of contrasts. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so genial and approachable that the little ones loved to play and nestle in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine, he writes. No one was half so kind and compassionate to sinners Yet no one spoke such hot, red-hot, scorching words about sin. A bruised reed he would not break. His own life was love. Yet on one occasion, he demanded from the Pharisees how they expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams, he writes, a seer of visions. Yet for sheer stark realism, he is all of our self-styled realists soundly beaten. He was the servant of all washing the disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode in the temple, and the hucksters and money changers fell over one another in their mad rush to get away from the fire they saw blazing in his eyes. In the end, Professor Stewart writes, he saved others, but at last himself he did not save. There is nothing in history like the union of contrast that confronts us in the Gospels. The mystery of Jesus, he writes, is the mystery of divine personality. Finally, hear these words of of an anonymous author. 
He simply writes this. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village and worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three short years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never owned a home. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family of his own. He never went to college. He never put his foot inside of a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place from which he was born. He never did any one of the things that usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials other than himself. While still a young man, this man writes, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies. He endured the mockery of a trial and was finally nailed upon a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, his executioners gambled for the only piece of property he owned on earth, his clothes. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave, no less, through the pity of a friend. Twenty-one long centuries have come and gone, and today, Jesus is still the centerpiece of the human race and the leader of the column of progress. He writes, I am far within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that were ever built, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as this one solitary life. So when I say that Christ is unique in history and has marked history, I guess what I'm saying, there's nothing like him in history. And these aren't from the perspectives of just Christians. These are from the perspectives of some critics and skeptics and scholars. When he ascended into heaven, as recorded for us in the book of Acts chapter 1, there were 120 of his disciples, 120 individuals that would have been called a Christian. In Palestine at that time, which boasted a population of about 4 million, so do the math, they were outnumbered 1 to 33,000. How is it that this motley crew of disciples has been able to turn the world upside down for 21 centuries since then? Now, this particular week, right, we, we got the blitz of, of Passion Week blitz. So you got History Channel, Time Magazine, every newspaper, every media outlet is capitalizing on Easter Sunday, and they're running stories and shows or whatever it is. And, and some are captivating, and some are engaging, and, and some are confusing, and some are just, you don't know what to make of it. But generally speaking, they all kind of break down an explanation, at least the more documentary types, of what possibly could explain the rise and sustaining of Christianity throughout the ages. And they fall into three general camps, kind of a a sociological phenomena for some people, they say, or uh, the political turmoil at the time. There were many messianic movements in that time, and this is the one that happened to stick. Or just cultural resonance. People in that culture seemed to agree with it, and it attracted them. Now, if we're going to be honest, we have to say, okay, those are some pretty good arguments. They are at least helpful to understand how a movement got started, because movements tend to start in that way. But how do you explain a sociological phenomena that transcends every society on this planet? How do you explain a belief system that stands in opposition to every political system ever devised? Now, there are some political systems that are more sympathetic to Christianity than others, but it stands at its core. The gospel stands at its core against every political ideology. And how do you explain cultural resonance with something that resonates with every culture that it has come into contact with? 
Christianity does not have a cultural epicenter. Now, we might tend to think that because we're kind of limited by our perspective. We think, well, it has a cultural center. It's, it's white Anglo culture. No, it's not. Do you realize that Christianity started off in the Mideast and then it moved to Europe and then over to North America and now it's going on to South America, Africa, and Asia? Look at all the religious systems and they have a cultural hub. If it's uh, Buddhism, Shintoism, Confucianism, you've got an Asian culture. If it's Islam, it's the Middle East. Other, on and on and so on. Christianity has no cultural center. So how do you explain the prevalence of Christianity when it started with 120 individuals and 21 centuries later, here we are talking about it? I think you explain it, how that the life of Christ and the resurrection of Christ has marked history in the same unique and precise way that the resurrection of Christ uniquely marks humanity. Now, if you attend... Um, Christ Community Church regularly, you know I'm not given to really long illustrations at all, but I just want to share this one I read from a book called The 20th Century Pulpit. It's a book of uh, basically sermons written in the 20th century, and that's what pastors do on our free time. We read other people's sermons. Uh, This pastor's name was Frederick Speakman, very imaginative man. He wrote a sermon, I'm just going to read you a portion of it, called What Pilate Said One Night. And it's this imaginative conversation between Pilate, the Roman governor in history we know that had Jesus crucified. Uh, and in Speakman's uh, imaginative dialogue here, Pilate years later is speaking to one of his servants. And he says this, this is Pilate. It suddenly closed, on, closed in on me, Gaius, the impact of how trapped I was. The proud arm of Rome with all its boast of justice was to be but a dirty dagger in the pudgy hands of those priests. I was waiting in the room for him, Gaius, the room I used for court, officially enthroned with cloak and guard when they let him in. Gaius, don't smile at this if you value your jaw, but I've had no peace since the day that he walked into my judgment hall. It has been years, Gaius, but the scenes I read from the back of my eyelids are there every night. Now, you've seen Caesar when Caesar was young. He used to inspect the legion, how arrogant his manner was. It was childlike. It was childlike compared to the manner of this Nazarene they brought before me. He didn't have to strut, you see. He walked towards my throne, arms bound with a strident mastery and control that by its very audacity silenced the room. And for an instant, it left me with this trembling and insane desire to stand up and salute him. So the clerk began reading the absurd list of charges that the priestly delegation, punctuating these with the palm rubbings and the beard strokings and the eye rollings and the pious pious gutturals that I've learned to ignore over the years. But I more felt it, Gaius, than heard it. I questioned him mechanically. He answered me very little. But what he said and the way he said it It was as if his level gaze had pulled my naked soul right up into my eyes and was probing it there. And a voice kept saying in my ear, why, Pilate, you're the one that's on trial. You'd have sworn he had just come out of friendly interest to see what was going to happen to me. And the very pressure of his standing there had grown unbearable, guys, when a slave had rushed in all a tremble or interrupting court, bringing a message from my wife, Claudia. You see, she had had stabbed at the stylus in that that frantic way she does when she's distraught. Don't judge this man. Don't judge this amazing man, Pilate. That's what she wrote. I was haunted in dreams by him this night. 
Guys, I tried to free him. From that moment on, I tried, and I always think he knew it. I declared him out of my jurisdiction, being a Galilean, but the native king Herod discovered that he was born in Judea and sent him right back to me. I then appealed to the crowd that had gathered in the streets a week ago. They were singing hallelujah, hosanna, hoping they were his sympathizers. But Caiaphas had stationed agitators to whip up the beasts that cry for blood. And you know, Gaius, how citizens here love blood just after breakfast. So I had him beaten, Gaius. A thorough barracks room beating. I don't know why I did. Maybe to appease the crowd, I suppose. But do we Romans really need a reason for beatings? I mean, that's the code for anything we don't understand, isn't it? Guys, it didn't work. The crowd roared like some slavering beast when I brought him back. If only you could have watched it, Gaius. They had thrown some rags of mock royal purple over his pulped and bleeding shoulders. They They had jammed this crown of thorns right down on his forehead. And it fit. Somehow it all fit. He stood there watching them from my balcony, swaying from the weakness at this point. But royal, I tell you. Not just pain, but pity shining from his eyes. And I kept thinking that this is somehow monstrous, that this is upside down, this whole scene is wrong. Somehow these animal noises that this crowd is shrieking should be praise. And then Caiaphas played his master stroke on me. He announced there in public, that this Jesus claimed a crown, and that is treason to Caesar. And the guards began to glance at one another quickly, and that mob of spineless filth began to shout out, Hail Caesar! Hail Caesar! And I knew right then that I was beat. And that's when I gave the order. And guys, I couldn't look at him. And I did a really childish thing. I called for a bowl of water, and there on the balcony, I washed my hands of that whole affair. But Gaius, as they led him away, I did look up, and he turned and looked at me. There was no smile. There was no pity. He just glanced at my hands, and I feel the weight of his eyes on them from now on. I know you're tired, Gaius. I've kept you up. And the fact of the matter is you do need some rest. Claudia will be asleep by now. Rows of lighted lamps surrounding her couch. Because you can't sleep in the dark anymore since that afternoon. You see, guys, the sun went down when my guards executed him. Yes, I know what that sounds like. I know that sounds crazy. I don't know how. I don't know what. I only know that I was there, and it turned as black as the tunnels of hell in that miserable city. And I tried to compose Claudia and explain how I, tra- I was trapped, and she railed at me with her dream. She's had that dream ever since. When she sleeps in the dark, some form of it comes back to her. That there was supposed to be a new Caesar, and I had him killed. Uh, We've been to Egypt, to their seers, to their magicians. We've listened by the hours to the oracles of the musty temples of Greece, chattering their visions. We've called it an oriental curse that we're under, and we've tried to break it a thousand ways, but there's no breaking it. But do you know, Gaius, how I keep going? Deeper than this curse is the haunting, this driving certainty that he's still somewhere near and that I have unfinished business with him. That now, as I walk by the lake, that he's following me. And as much as that strikes terror in my heart, I wonder if that isn't my only hope. 
You see, guys, if I could walk up to him and this time salute and tell him, now I know that whoever he is, he's the only man in Judea that was worth the name that day. I'd tell him, I know I wasn't trapped. I trapped myself. I'd tell him, here's one Roman who really wishes he was a Caesar. I believe that would do it, don't you think? I believe he'd listen and he'd know that I meant it. And at last, I could see him smile. Yes, it's, it's quiet tonight. Not a breeze by the lake. Good night. You better run along. And when you leave, would you tell my servant to bring my, uh, my, my cloak, the heavy one, please? I'll be walking by the lake. Yes, I know it's dark. But I'm not going to be alone, Caius. I guess I never really have been alone. Good night, Caius. It's a powerful use of imagination, isn't it? Particularly that line where he says, I, I know that I have unfinished business with him. And that as much as that strikes terror in his heart, he knows that that's possibly his only hope. Hope for what, though? What is Pilate hoping for? He's hoping for forgiveness, right? He's hoping that the wrongs can be made right. He's hoping that he can be cleaned of what he has done. He's hoping for a second chance that this new Caesar, a benevolent, kind, merciful, righteous Caesar, would rule in his place. You see, that is the hope that Christianity has held out for 21 centuries. That hope has become reality. And you can read all the books out there, all the wisdom we have in our world, whether you're somebody who reads like ancient wisdom, Cicero, Sophocles, or or Plato, or Oprah, or Riley, or Veronica Roth, whoever you read, you're never going to find words as powerful as what Matthew wrote in Matthew 11, 28. He said, Jesus addressed the crowd and said, come to me, all ye who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You see, Christ has impacted all of history because only his life and death impacts all of humanity because only he offers what all of humanity ultimately needs, forgiveness and to be made right with God, the forgiveness of our sins and reconciliation with God. Now, I realize today that in our culture, even the topic of sin is something we don't have. The only time you see sin in our culture is on a dessert menu, right? Sinfully delicious, those kinds of things. We don't like to think of sin because it's just simply uncomfortable to us. We'd rather think of Jesus not as a sin conqueror, but as just a nice moral reformer, maybe a social justice guru, uh, maybe somebody who makes me just feel good. A sociologist from Chapel Hill, Christian Smith, wrote an amazing book. When he did an analysis of, of Christianity in America today, he says, we don't really have historic Christianity in most churches in America today. The Christianity that understands the, understands the gospel as a holy and gracious God confronting and crushing sinful humanity or sin so that humanity be maybe made right with him has been replaced by what he calls, get this, moral therapeutic deism. I want to be good. I want to be happy, and I believe there's a God. He says, beyond that, the historic Christian faith is disappearing in American churches, being replaced with a moral therapeutic deism. But here's the thing. If we miss the fact that at the core of Christ's ministry was to destroy sin, we not only misunderstand Christ, we misunderstand ourselves. And that's not just a pastor's opinion. Let me read to you Hobart Maurer, who was the, uh, one time the president of the American Psychological Association, a president of John Hopkins University, so a pretty well-known university, and a professor from Yale and Harvard. Listen to what Hobart Maurer says. 
For several decades, we psychologists have looked upon the whole matter of sin and moral accountability as a great incubus and have acclaimed our liberation from it as epoch-making. But at length, we have discovered to be free from sin is now to have the excuse of being sick rather than being sinful and now to court the danger of becoming completely lost. This danger, he writes, as I believe betokened by the widespread interest in existentialism which we are presently witnessing. In becoming a moral, immoral, ethically neutral, and free, we have cut the very roots of our being and lost our deepest sense of selfhood and identity. And with the neurotics themselves, he says, we find ourselves asking, who am I? What is my deepest destiny? What does living really mean? Powerful, written from somebody who doesn't claim to be a Christian. A psychologist. Not that psychologists can't be Christians. Just want to throw that out there. (laughs) In other words, what Maurer is saying, that this concept of sin is so fundamental to understanding human nature now that to ignore the concept of sin would be to misunderstand human nature. Implicitly, Maurer is saying that unless you understand what's truly wrong with human nature, you have no hope of making it go right. Now, you might be sitting there and say, all right, okay, if you want to call it sin, all right, pastor, or maybe you had this experience sharing it with your friends, all right, all right, you want to call it sin? Okay, yeah, so maybe I sin, right? But I haven't murdered anyone. I haven't done the big stuff, right? You've heard those kinds of things. And as a pastor, when I hear that, I, I kind of think that's interesting that we view things that way. And there's an urban pastoral legend that, that floats around. That I think it's an urban legend because it always kind of changes but the story in modern times now goes like this, that there were two very, very wealthy businessmen, uh, but they had gotten their wealth being very corrupt and very dishonest. One of them had passed away, a brother, there are two brothers. One of the brothers passed away, so the remaining brother asked the pastor of a local church, hey, could you do the service and could you give the eulogy for my brother? Obviously, the pastor was hesitant, but the remaining brother pleaded with him, please. So the pastor agreed to do the service. Okay, great. As long as you say what, whatever you're going to say or whatever you're going to do, as long as you call my brother a saint, would you please just do that? So the day of the funeral and the service shows up and the church is packed with the who's who of the city because they were very powerful, wealthy businessmen. The, the pastor got up to the, the podium to speak and the casket was right in front of him. He said, the man lying before you was a corrupt man, dishonest, vain, audacious, a fraud, an absolute fraud. He did every dirty, rotten, deceitful thing you could possibly imagine. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. <laughs> now, we, the reason that's funny is we understand the comparison here, but why is it when we compare, we're always comparing ourselves to the lower common denominator rather than the highest or higher common denominator, right? Compared to me, you're probably a very good person. Compared to the person on your right or left, you're probably a really good person. But why aren't you comparing yourself to somebody like a, um, maybe like a Mother Teresa, or like a Billy Graham, or a virtuous life like a Mahatma Gandhi? Why is it we always compare ourselves with murderers and people like that? Here's why. Intuitively, and this is what the Bible teaches, we all know there's a standard. We all know a standard exists. And we're afraid we don't match up to that standard. And so what we do is either we will, we will try to match that standard, right? We'll get ourselves really cleaned up and get very religious, and we meet that standard, and then we get self-righteous because other people should meet the standard like we did. 
Or we lower the standard, and then we meet that standard, and then we get self-righteous of the people who are looking down at us because they're still trying to reach this higher standard, and why don't they compromise the standard? So the guys on the lower standard are just as self-righteous as the guy on the higher standard. Or you get rid of the standard entirely, and you feel like you're living a free life, and you get self-righteous of guys against the people who are living by a standard. But you see, in every situation, we're all trying to be self-righteous. And in every situation, we know that's not the way this is supposed to work. If you've been with us in our study of Ephesians, we learn very clearly that Jesus Christ, by his death on the cross, abolished any standards of salvation through works because we can't do it. Jesus said, if you want to see God, be perfect. That disqualifies all of us except him. And he destroyed that standard and said, I'm giving you the benefits of matching that standard if you have faith in me. That's what the gospel is. That's what the gospel is saying is that that standard has been met in the life and death of Christ. I want to read to you a powerful passage from 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about this. In 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21, Paul says this, For our sake God made him, Christ, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So not only do we go from being released from a debt we cannot repay, but to getting riches we couldn't imagine. See what Paul says? That God put upon Christ all of our sins, that God may then put upon us all of Christ's righteousness. See, Christ has marked history because there's nothing like him in history. Christ has marked humanity because only Christ uniquely meets the needs of humanity. But then how does Christ mark eternity? In his autobiography, Just As I Am, Billy Graham writes of the early days of his ministry. And Billy Graham, um, he's probably the closest thing to a prophet in the last century that we've had. He writes one of the most intimidating moments of his life was he was in the office of Conrad Adenauer, which was the chancellor of Germany right after the Second World War. Young Billy Graham was standing in Conrad or Chancellor Adenauer's office looking out his window at a destroyed Germany. And the chancellor said, Mr. Graham, I want to ask you a question. Do you believe that Jesus actually rose from the dead? To which Graham says in his autobiography, he was stunned because he had never heard a statesman be so bold and upfront about spiritual matters, especially the resurrection of Christ. So kind of getting his courage, he said to the chancellor, Mr. Chancellor Adenauer, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, I'd have no gospel to preach. And he was bracing himself for the chancellor's response. He said what happened next shocked him as the chancellor got up behind his desk walked over to the window where Billy Graham was standing, looked over the city in ruins, and he looked at Billy Graham and said, Mr. Graham, apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there's no hope for mankind. Christ marks eternity because of his resurrection is the proof positive that death had been conquered and that the sacrifice given to conquer death had been found acceptable to the heavenly father. That's why he came back. The resurrection proves that death has been destroyed and that the sacrifice, Christ, was acceptable. That's the power of the resurrection. There is hope beyond the grave because of Christ's resurrection. Read the Gospels. They're all over the Gospels that what Christ came to do was to defeat sin and give life. And all these amazing miracles are pointing towards that great fact. I remember when I first got saved in late high school, reading the Gospel of John chapter 11 and I came across that passage where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And I love how John is such a vivid writer. 
Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days, and Jesus said, roll the tomb away, or the door, the tomb away, open it up. And the people said, Lord, he stinketh. You know, <laughs> of course, he's been dead four days. Decomposition had taken place. God was deliberately, if you know the narrative, Jesus waited a few days before he actually showed up. He could have stopped Lazarus from dying, but he waited. And he waited for him to be really, really dead. I know that sounds odd, but dead. He was stinking. Because he wanted to show resurrection power was complete and ultimate. And I remember reading that when he said, Lazarus, come out. And when Lazarus came out, I thought to myself, what would it be like to be his friend? (laughs) What would scare Lazarus from that point on? There would be nothing that would shake Lazarus' confidence. Well, the reason I remember that is a little after that, I found a, a play entitled Lazarus Laugh by a screenwriter, or excuse me, a playwright named Eugene O'Neill. And he, he does a historical fiction play on the, the, the persecution of the early church from the Roman emperor Caligula. And while Caligula is slaughtering the Christians, he gets to Lazarus, and Lazarus is actually laughing at him. Now, you don't laugh at a Roman emperor. And Lazarus is laughing so much that finally Caligula says, Lazarus, if you laugh one more time, I'll have you put to death. And at that point, Lazarus just doubles over and falls on the ground. He he loses it. He finally collects himself, gets up, gets really serious, looks the emperor right in the eye and says, Caligula, haven't you heard? Death is dead. Death, Caligula, died. John Owen, the wonderful Puritan writer, said the death of death in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ was proof positive. One of the most empirically provable historical facts was there was a man named Jesus Christ that came back from the grave. You can read the historians of the time, Josephus, Tacitus, they talk about this and can't make sense of it because you can't make sense of it because God raised his son back from the dead and that has never happened before nor since. But it will happen again for those who put their faith in Christ. So when the disciples left the tomb that day, they were still a little confused and scared. What had happened that their master, who they just saw two nights before, three nights before, nailed to a cross, and here was his tomb under strict Roman guard. The guards were gone. The stone was rolled away. There was nothing there but his linen garments. If you read the end of Luke chapter 24, you still see they're trying to figure this out. They were just filled with marvel and wonder, not knowing what was coming next, but they knew that everything had completely changed and nothing would be the same. Jesus Christ is the culmination of God's plan to redeem humanity. That's why if you come here week in and week out, sooner or later we're going to get back to Jesus. It's not because we don't have other material to talk about. It's because there's nothing else worth talking about than Jesus Christ. Jesus is the pinnacle, the climax of God's intention to restore and rescue humanity. Jesus is the answer that this culture that's fragmenting and falling apart so desperately needs. Jesus is the answer for, as Maurer says, the existential crisis we are experiencing in this world. It's Jesus Christ. Let me conclude with this last, I don't know what to call it, portrait of Christ. To the artist, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one altogether lovely. To the architect, he is the chief cornerstone. To the baker, he is the living bread. To the banker, he is the hidden treasure. To the biologist, he is the life. To the builder, he is the sure foundation. To the carpenter, the door. To the doctor, the great physician. To the educator, the great teacher. To the engineer, the new and living way. 
to the farmer, he is the sower and the lord of the harvest. To the florist, he is the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. To the geologist, the rock of ages, and the horticulturist, the true vine. To the judge, he is the righteous judge, the judge of all men. To the juror, he is the faithful and true witness. To the jeweler, he is the pearl of great price. To the lawyer, he is the counselor, the lawgiver, and the advocate. To the newspaper man, he is the good news of great joy. To the philanthropist, he is the unspeakable gift. To the philosopher, the wisdom of God. To the preacher, the word of God. To the sculptor, the living stone. To the servant, the good master. To the statesman, the desire of all nations. To the student, the incarnate truth. To the theologian, he is the author and finisher of our faith. To the laborer, he is the great giver of rest. To the sinner, he is the lamb of God that takes away their sin. And to the Christian, he is the son of the living God, the savior, their redeemer, the one who conquered death and rose again to make all who believe in him free. I pray that that's true for all of us. Let's pray. We cannot go beyond Jesus Christ, Lord. But that was your intention all along. From the very first chapters of Genesis, you promised a coming Savior to make right the horrible tragedy that sin introduced into our world to the very last pages of Revelation where we see that he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And you came as a child in a manger and you allowed yourself to be rejected, ridiculed, crucified. But you rose again because yours is a perfect life and you conquered the grave. And you freely give to all of us who would have our faith and trust in you, recognizing that you are the great redeemer, the reconciler, the one who can make God and man come together again. Father, I pray that that reality would be the reality that shapes the way we live and not other things, not our own aspirations and desires and our own culture's way of viewing life, but life as we are taught through the scripture that we might have abundant life. We thank you that you make that freely available to us all. We pray we would take advantage of that. We would embrace it, enjoy it, and live in it. In his name we pray, amen.